Father, I am called to preach this morning. I am called reverend, and I am not. Father, I would have eyes and ears and hearts directed to your mouth that speaks from your word to our very soul. I would not be revered, though, Father, I am ashamed of my weaknesses. Father, allow my weaknesses to appear if they would but reflect the strength of your word, the beauty of Jesus Christ, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit as you would speak to our tears, to our weary toil, and you would speak to us as a church together. Father, speak for your servants. Two rivers is listening, hanging on your every word for life. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Simon Wessenthal, in 1942, had two things against him. Number one, he was Jewish. Number two, he lived in Poland. He was taken, in, along with his wife, into a concentration camp that had both men and women. He was allowed to spend some time with his wife every day in their labors because he was very artistic. He had a background in engineering and in architecture, but he was very creative along with his wife, and that was discovered. And so they allowed him and his wife the further indignity of painting swastikas on captured Soviet uh, trains uh, in order for the, the Nazis to be further glorified as they hauled more prisoners into these concentration camps or munitions around Germany for deployment. Uh, one commandant in a neighboring concentration camp for in celebration or in a desire to recognize Hitler's 54th birthday said, I want to execute 54 male Jewish intellectuals. Not having enough remaining in his camp, he reached out to the neighboring camp that Simon and his wife was in and rounded up Simon. Well, the man in charge of having the tank swastikas painted on them was not happy about that. And as Simon was going through what was called the hose, it was a corridor, a small corridor of bob wire that led to the place that these 54 prisoners were to be executed, the man pulled him and another out of the line and said to the commandant, oh, don't worry, we'll find two others to take their place for I want him to paint a portrait of the Fuhrer. Father in dignity. Simon and his wife together would have over 89 family members 
who were executed under the Nazi regime. Simon Wesenthal is famous. You have heard of him as a Nazi hunter. Following his release, and it's an incredible story of how he survived not one, but three concentration camps, all being closed down, but very weak, emaciated, and imprisoned. He was released in 1945, and within the year, he became a Nazi hunter. He was interviewed having established a worldwide center, the Simon Wesenthal Center, that would look for former Nazi persecutors, oppressors, in South America, Argentina, Brazil, around the world. They said, what gave you such passion for justice to be done? Because there was an initial surge to get a handful of men and some women, former Nazis, to Nuremberg. But after about five years, no nation was going to pursue these former Nazis. They were forgotten, but not by Simon. He said, well, there was one particular event. One particular event where I was at work painting these swastikas, the great emblem of my and my nation's oppressor, where there was a pit where regularly men would be brought out and shot. And two men were brought out and they were tied together back to back. And one of the Nazi officers came and got another officer and said, I want you to see something. And he fired through the head of one And it went through the head of another one, killing them both, falling, dropping them into the pit. He said, see, we could save 50% on munitions. He said, I vowed to my God, if I should live, I would count my life as ransomed to fight for justice for those that died. Oppression. Oppression. This morning, if you were to make an outline of chapter 4, which I found initially when I turned my attention in my study to, to studying this passage, we know that Solomon who wrote the wisdom literature of Proverbs, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, as well as Ecclesiastes, we know that he's very proverbial. And so I I looked at these 16 verses of chapter 4 initially, and I said, wow, how am I going to do this? These are just a bunch of Proverbs. And then a theme, one theme emerged. And that is that in this life, we all are going to face oppression. We're going to face a cause to grieve even to the point of tears because of injustices 
that we experience, not simply globally, but individually. And you are very young indeed if you have yet not experienced a personal injustice. It could be not getting picked for the team. It could be a misunderstanding and and given a, 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 a wrong grade. But there are going to be injustices that we experience all of our life under this sun. There's going to be calls for a heart that weeps and grieves. Oh, but were it different. So we're going to experience tears. That's the, the first point. And then the second point we're going to look at is toil, labor, that hamster on the wheel over, 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 over. I'm motivated to work. I'm more, got to work, got to work, got to work, got to work. But in this life, if we're going to make it through, in our tears and in our toil, we must, we must do it together. Particularly as sons and daughters of God our Father. That's the thing. Togetherness in the tears. Togetherness in the toil. Togetherness in this life. And so as I begin, I want to ask you a concluding question. Now, this is not my conclusion. Do you have friends? Do you have a community? Even if it's just one that you can do life with. Your life on their life, their life on your life, to do and get through this life. If you don't, If you don't, Solomon warns us. There will be no end to your tears. There will be no comfort. Ever. We'll just self-medicate ourselves into oblivion. And you will toil. And you will have no relationships with others because toil takes all of your time. Let's look at the Scriptures. Solomon says in verse 4 something that he has said throughout the other three chapters, I saw. I saw all. We see it later down in verse 4. He says, I saw that all toiled. We see again in verse 7. I saw vanity under the sun. I saw, I observed, I see. And he had the vantage point to do so as the king of Israel. He had the vantage of being the wisest from wisdom come from God Himself. No man has ever been wiser than Solomon except for Jesus Christ. He had wisdom to penetrate the depths of this life. He had the vantage point from being a king over all of nations. Queen of Sheba said, There is no one like this king. No one. And he says, I see in the dark as if it's light. And I see and I looked and I saw every oppression. Back in chapter 3, he's building off an oppression that back in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. In other words, where you would expect there to be a righteous judge, there's a corrupt, bribe, 
inclined, selfish, self-centered, different motivated despot. There's a wicked person in place of where a righteous would be. Psalm 76 captured my attention this week. Um, Excuse me, Psalm 72. Oh, this is a psalm, Psalm 72, and we don't have it for the screen, but Psalm 72 says this is a psalm of Solomon. Not all the psalms were written by David. Some were written by Asa. Some were written by the sons of Korah. Some were written by David. Many of them by David, most of them. Some were written by his son Solomon. Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. I'm going to come back. In just a minute, I want you to focus on this word righteousness. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. Crush the oppressor. This is Solomon saying, I'm praying this for myself as a king. I'm praying that I will be a righteous king. And we know that David and Solomon saw themselves as king stewards. The king of Israel was God. And they're saying, God, you're our righteous king. And I'm praying. And it takes prayer. Because it's not natural to man. I'm praying that I don't be an oppressor king like so many of the kings of Israel were. And what does it look like? Down in verse 12 of of Psalm 72. He delivers the needy when he calls. One more needy voice and he doesn't overlook it. They call, the king responds. The poor in him who has no helper. The person who's not connected. He has pity on the weak. The person who gives me nothing. In return, does not reciprocate. The needy. He saves the lives of the needy. Those who are dying. Who may have little purpose in society. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Solomon says that he looks and he says, nobody rules in righteousness. Righteousness defined is doing things right. God is righteous in that He rules and He reigns and He does everything right at the right time all the time. And Solomon is here is saying, but under the sun we don't see righteousness. Under the sun we see oppression. And twice he says, I see the tears of the oppressed that no one is there to comfort them. And then he says it again at the end of verse 1. There was no one there to comfort them. And notice he's saying not, there's no comfort. He puts it, attaches it to a person. He says there's no one. In 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, we read in verse 3, and I'll give you verse 4 as well, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So our God, one of His descriptions is the God of all comfort. And we do well when we face injustice, when we face oppression, when we face violence, when it comes into our home, when it comes into to, to my life, comes into my little circle, we do well to pray to a God of all comfort. But where shall our comfort come from? It will come from one of comfort. Verse 4, God of all comfort, who comforts us, how? How does He do it? In all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Solomon is lamenting here that there's no one of comfort. Years later, the Apostle Paul will say, God has met us each at the point of our affliction. And that to raise us up and to make us equipped now to comfort other people. There is someone in your, in your sphere of influence, in your circle right now, who needs comfort. And you're the perfect person. As Tim Keller has said before, your hand is perfectly shaped to hold their hand. But it's shaped by your affliction. Oh, I don't like affliction. But my affliction can be seen as having purpose and meaning if I understand God will use that in the life of another person that I may serve them. I may be, I may be God's choice instrument. He is the God of all comfort and now He's saying, you're going to be in my hand serving, bringing comfort to another. I had so meant to catch him to ask permission to share this, and I think he'll forgive me. But Barry Brinson is a great illustration of this. Barry Brinson, after the loss of his father, experienced grief. Grief of such an afflicting, oppressive nature that on the other side of that grief, he became a source, because of the affliction that he had faced, a source of comfort to those of us who know grief. Upon the death of my father this summer, and then upon the subsequent, just weeks later, the death of Wendy's sister, Barry approached us each, and he gave us literature that has been of great comfort to us. Yesterday on the phone, it was my sister-in-law, Wendy's sister, who passed away. It was her, it would have been her birthday. And there are family members that are still grieving. And I heard Wendy say, we've got some literature that was given to us that we think could help you. What do we do in light of the afflictions and the oppressions Paul, I mean, Solomon is lamenting. There's no one of comfort. But Paul says, may we in our injustices and oppression comfort one another together. 
together facing oppression so that my affliction becomes another's comfort. Secondly, he talks about toil. And again, this is connected with facing it together. Now, look in verse 4 and he says, Look, I looked at every toil and I see that every skill, every temperament, every gift set, every talent in work was motivated by envy. Now, the word for envy here in Hebrew has a positive and it has a negative. The positive is ambition, zeal, envy. Man, I'm going after the ring. Man, I want to I go to this training school and then I want to take this opportunity and then I want to hone this skill in order... That's, that's envy, but that's a positive. In other words, I have a career track and I am sacrificing for that. I'm ambitious in a positive way. But it also has a negative. Envy being not I see a position and I want it, I'm getting after it, but I'm jealous. I'm envious of others. I'm willing to do things even subversively to get them out of the way so I can get ahead. I'm going to serve me. It's me that's important. Both, whether it is ambition, career track, or whether it's jealousy, have to be watched. Solomon would say, with either one of those forms of envy, you can see people in the workplace. You can see people in the classroom. You can see, and I love to include our wives and our mothers, your job is harder than ours as men you know, outside of the home. But you can compare yourself to others as well with your skills as a wife and a mother. But you look at others as rivals. But you don't look at them as we're in this together, cooperating for a greater goal. And yet, that's God's design. He says, look, you're motivated by envy, and that's just striving. It creates all this strife after the wind. And then he gives us a remedy for envy. Now I want you to see this. I I left my props in the truck. So you're going to have to use your imagination. But imagine your hands. And he says, two hands made for work. And those two hands, he says, the fool... When he's faced with all this labor and this striving, he just folds his hands and puts them in his lap. He just eats whatever comes. And he says, but it's really to his destruction. It's not cannibalism per se, and it's certainly not suicide, but he's just saying, you know, it's just, he's just kind of eating off of his own slow dribble of resources away. You know, a fool in his folly. He won't have anything come winter to eat. That's a, one of the proverbs. He's, he needs, go to the ant sluggard who works diligently and he stores up his food for the winter. He says, I see the fool and he does nothing. But then, there is the person who is getting after it with both hands. Imagine a hammer and imagine a book in each hand. And I'm like, I'm working with 
the book and the literature and the teaching. And I'm working with a hammer. I recently, uh, Wendy and I, had an opportunity to visit with my uncle who is coming up on his 90th birthday. And he had to, um, he had to hire a roofer for a problem he had with his roof. And he said, you know, I saw two incredible things about that man that came out to do the roofing job. He said, number one, he was 80 years old. And he scrambled up that ladder like a 60-year-old. All right, now you have to be an old person like me to understand that that's actually, 60's pretty good. 60's still good, okay. And he said, so he scrambled up that ladder like a 60-year-old, and he says, you know, this guy, all he did all of his life was roofing. He said, I never knew it, but do you know that a professional roofer, hands-on professional roofer, uses both hands? He says, you think about the corners, the gables, and a roof. He said, if you're just right-handed, how are you going to trim the shingles? He said, man, he, and he says, I think his left. He said, I couldn't, I tried to figure out as I watched him, two going at one time. I tried to find out which one was his dominant hand. He said, I never did figure it out. I asked the guy when he came down, he says, oh, I'm right-handed. He says, but you, in this business, he says, you're only working half pace if you're using one hand. Solomon's saying, don't do that. That's striving after the wind. Even if it enriches you, don't do that. He says, the remedy for envy. He says, you know, why are you trying so hard anyway to make it? Is it a fear that you're going to be exposed as an imposter or a loser? Or is it fear that I've got to get it while I can and you're looking totally towards yourself and your own strengths? He says, here's the remedy for envy. One hand with your tool and your labor. And I won't give percentages. Let's say a hammer and then another for a cup of tea. That's my illustration. I can slug coffee and work at the same time. But tea, I learned when I was in Scotland, tea is an event. You've got to let it steep. You've got to enjoy it with a friend. It's not made to keep working and drink like you do coffee. But it doesn't have to be tea, but it's something, something that is pleasurable to you. Maybe Rocky Road ice cream for some of you. Now, I've I got to leave this. Some of you, though, are going to have to deal with what I call low-grade guilt at enjoying earthly pleasures. Now, I'm talking about virtuous earthly pleasures. I'm not talking about vices here. But God made all of this world, and you're going to live in this world forever in the new heaven and the new earth. God made every sunset and sunrise. God made the beach. God made the mountaintop. He, you know, those hikes that we so enjoy. And some of us have bought into the lie of Satan that God's a miser. He, does, he just wants you to be pious. He wants you to spend all your time in, in Bible study and in prayer. And those are good things. But what about a Bible study on the beach? What about praying on a long walk in the neighborhood? How about a, a good old black and white classic movie? How about laughter with the boys over a beer? How about being... Oh, knocking over the microphones. 
How about meeting with your girlfriend, just having a glass of wine? We're not two totalers at two rivers, but just a cup of tea. How about laughter and pleasure? But you can't do that if you've got both hands full of work. You're going to have to give up some things. But he further says, and this is where he begins to talk about together. He says, what if you work cooperatively with others? In verse 9, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. Not the same reward, but it's better. It may not be proportionally more, but it's better. He said in verse, seven, verse 8, he said, I saw that one person, he doesn't have a son, doesn't have a brother, there's no end to his toil, his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is an unhappy... In other words, this, there is somebody out there who's never quite satisfied in the pursuit of riches. So that he says, I can't take time for pleasure. And he sacrifices son, brother, wife, husband, friend. He sacrifices relationships for that. But in verse 9, Solomon says wisely, better to have a mate, a workmate, cooperate. Better to, to do things and labor together. And it'll be a different reward, but it's a good reward. It's very fulfilling. But you might not get the promotion. You might not even get ahead. But it's a good reward for your toil. And then in verse 10 through 12, he talks about being together. Two, 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 two. And the imagery here is two travelers on a difficult road. In Palestine, the, the, you know, the, 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 the landscape of Israel at that time would have had many, many rugged roads. It wasn't a Roman road, level, paved. You know, one of the illustrations of the kingdom come is that, that the king will have every, every road level. You won't have to go up a mountain and then winding down. It'll just be right through the mountain. Smooth sailing. But not at this time. And Solomon says in verse 10, he says, he gives us, beginning with verse 10, he, he, he talks and he says, there's three illustrations in this journey. He said there's falling down, there's warming up, and then there's fighting together and not one another. And he says in verse 10, he says, you know, whoa, Whoa! Ed, when he read from his version of the Bible, pity. It's so sad. It's depressing when somebody falls down and they fall down alone. Now we, we think, about, think about this in three ways. What about when someone falls down financially and they fall down alone? No one to help them. What about when someone falls down health-wise? That their, their health is declining. Maybe even an illness leading to death. But they're alone. What about emotionally or spiritually? I can't, I'm, 
I can't figure this out. I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know. What, why is this happening to me? Alone. Whoa, 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 whoa. When you fall down alone. And Solomon, the wisest man in the world, says two is better. Two is better. To be there. Or to have someone in your life. But Tim Keller, again, says covenant community. That is community that's like a family. That's not good... You know, it's not Friday friends. It's there just for the party. It's, it's friends that are there through thick and thin. Rejoice when you rejoice. Rejoice for you. You got the promotion. Or they weep when you weep. Oh, I mourn for you and what you're facing right now. Covenant community is like air. We don't miss it until we need it. But these friendships, they need to be cultivated. Not simply you wait to be invited into somebody's life and friendship. You invite them. Introverts, don't use introversion as an excuse. Invite them. But not only cultivated, planted like a little seedling. Enjoy that friendship. And Be careful. Some of us have been without such intimate friendships for so long that when somebody says, Oh, I'm so glad we're finally getting together for coffee. How's it going? You're just bleeding, hemorrhaging all over them. Be more interested in them. You know who my best friends, and maybe this is why they're my best friends, my best friends are far more interested in me than they are interested in themselves. And it reciprocates. I get with them and I'm like, oh, okay, I'll tell you a little bit about me, but now tell me about you. Enjoy those friendships, cultivate those friendships, and then protect those friendships. Just one thing. Stop disposable friendships. Stop it. I want you to see that God is matchmaking the two. So that when this friendship becomes difficult, burdensome, and costly, you don't kick them to the curb. Now you may say, oh, I'm not that, I don't ever do that. But in essence, if you never keep up with them, you never call them, you never spend time with them, and technology allows us to spend time with people. I don't necessarily think it's relational Facebook, I mean a little, but it allows us to send emails, text, Skype, FaceTime for friends at our distance. But if when they're going through trough periods of their life, we abandon them. What kind of friend are we? We're just utilitary friends. But they'll be there for us if we're there for them. And God says that is a good thing. I've designed it that way. I've wired the world that you can't do life on your own. I, I permit. I permit oppression. I permit the tears so that you will not weep alone. I permit the toil so you won't work alone. I permit and I matchmake in my design for the church is that it be sons and daughters, brothers and sisters together. Let's embrace that. Let's embrace that. Jesus said in John fifteen fifteen that no longer does He call us servants, but that He calls us friends because He's told us everything that the Father has told Him directly. He's held nothing back. Why? Because He wants us to know the Father like He knows the Father. He wants us to know that same intimacy, and He is that for us. 
We're told in Galatians 6 too that when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. I am not here. Please believe me, I know I'm a preacher and I can be I can come off sometimes because I designed I desire to be convicting, but I'm not here to reprove two rivers. I think you do friendship very well. I think part of it is driven out of our need. We need someone else in our falling down. We need somebody else that would keep us warm by that encouraging conversation so that our heart, as they begin to tell us of Christ, as they begin to, to, to speak into our life, our hearts warm up like those on the Emmaus Road. Oh, how our hearts were burning when I was with that person. They so encouraged my heart. And we fight these fights together. I think Two Rivers does this very, very well. I just want to remind you that that's our great calling as a church and it's our great resource. For we will face tears, we will face toils, but God has called us to face it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this table as we take from a common cup and as we take from a common loaf, that we take from you our love, our union, and thereby, Father, we take friendship with Jesus Christ. And all of Jesus' friends are our friends. Father, I thank you for putting us into this church. I thank you for generating both a want and a need for friendship and also a calling on our life to be friends like Jesus Christ. Father, this table represents the cost of Him becoming our friend. He sacrificed His very life in order that we might be the very friends of You, our God, through Him. Lord, now that we're Your friends, God of all comfort, send us into others' lives strengthened and equipped by His friendship and love to minister to one another as friends with all comfort that comes from Him. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.